I V M. Hello and welcome to the Habit Coach Podcast. I am Ashton Doctor, your Habit Coach, and today we're going to be talking about mindfulness in the workplace. Now, this is something that is so critical for us to learn because, well, we're so distracted all the time. Half the time is spent in distractions, wasted time, and then we say, "Oh my God, I have no time. I'm going to work late into the night," and it just becomes one endless stream of problems. So today with us we have S Venkatesh. Now we've already done a podcast with him on creativity. If you haven't heard that, do hear that after this one. Today we're going to be talking about mindfulness in the workplace. So S Venkatesh, welcome to the Habit Coach Podcast. Thank you, Ashwin. Uh, wonderful to be here on your show. Venkatesh, tell us a little bit about yourself so that we can set context and then jump into our topic. Sure. So, uh, you know, I grew up actually, part of my childhood was in Tanzania. I still have vivid memories of the national park visits and everything. Part of my childhood was in a small town in West Bengal called Faraka, where we would have to cross the Ganges every day to get to school. And the Ganges was two and a half kilometers wide there. You used to walk two and a half kilometers no, no, across the no. river? No, cross it on our school bus. Huh. But it was something to cross the Ganges every day getting to school. Wow, okay. I thought this was one of those I used to put my books on top of my head and walk across. There was a school bus. No, no, no such story. It was was a school bus and all, but it was just like a really beautiful place. The Ganges was at its widest. Uh, Paraka is close to the, not far from the Delta. So it was two and a half kilometers wide. Okay. And then the latter part of my schooling was in Delhi. I did my engineering and frankly, because that's what a lot of other people did. I did my MBA after that. And... uh, yeah, I think along the way, I harbored this desire to write. But, you know, after I started working for some years, that was sort of dormant. So I, I my first job was in the stock market. Okay. I joined Credit Suisse and then worked with Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan as well. And, you know, this whole adrenaline roller coaster world, it was, you know, great. Somewhere along the way, I realized that I would have to make time for writing if I want to pursue that as well. So slowly, I started making time. I worked with a couple of private equity firms making investments in a lot of companies. And over the last six years, I've been running a management consulting firm, advising companies on strategy and so on. And my first book, Kalkut, was published in 2018. The second one was published last year, Agni Ban. The third one, incidentally, is a thriller linked to the stock market. So that will be out end of this year. Oh, okay. Highs and lows. Yes. (laughs) That's a nice name, by the way. (laughs) I I might just steal it, but yeah. Yeah. Lovely. So Venkatesh, in all of this, how did the idea of, you know, mindfulness or how did you discover mindfulness in working in so many different aspects of, of life? Sure. So, so this is actually a journey of sorts in itself. So my first exposure to mindfulness was frankly in my third year of engineering. So I was at IIT Delhi and there was a professor who was a mindfulness instructor as well. So, you know, I attended this Vipassana 10-day retreat in Jaipur and 10 days of complete silence. Frankly, some of us had gone because, you know, it was free boarding and lodging. And (laughs) little did we know that, you know, it was also 10 days of not being allowed to talk or read or anything else. But jokes apart, it was a life-changing experience. I think it was the first time I actually got a chance to see my mind as distinct from myself. And to also realize that much of, many of the time, you know, it's like somebody who's behind a screen versus somebody who's in, you know, in front of it. He doesn't even know that the screen exists. Correct. So the mind is like that. You have your mind. It's like, think of it as like, you know, two balls or something. So you're there, then your mind is there. And through the mind's eye, you're seeing the rest of the world. 
if you don't even know these two balls exist, you're just doing what the mind tells you. You're it's sort of, uh, you know, the mind is the boss and you're just following instruction. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so I uh, attended this mindfulness retreat, forgot about it for a good, I think, 10 years. Then I attended a mindfulness retreat again. It also coincided with the period when I started writing. Okay. So mindfulness contributed a lot. You know, in fact, I'm, I can almost go to the extent of saying that if it was not for mindfulness meditation, I wouldn't have actually ended up writing either of the two books that I've written so far. It really helped me get ideas, get focused. It helped me carry the thread from one day to another. And so that's how these books came about. But along the way, I actually realized, and I've been a regular practitioner now for about six years. The second was also Vipassana? Yes, second was also Vipassana. Mm -hmm. And I'll talk about it. I mean, there are various mindfulness techniques. Vipassana is not the only one. Mm -hmm. But I've been a regular practitioner now for six years. And I've realized that the applications of this are not just in unlocking creativity or in writing, but also, you know, it has applications in our professional worlds as well. I come from the stock markets. I'm still an avid stock market investor. And I've realized that there are just so many areas that mindfulness can be applied in. And these are not some esoteric things we are talking about. This is tangible stuff that you can actually do and feel the impact of literally by the day. This one is very fascinating. Tell me a little bit more about how mindfulness helped you with the stock market. Oh, this is, I'm actually going to write a book about it, but <laughs> I'll, I'll give you a sneak peek into what I have in mind. So a few things, right? So I spent the first 15 years of my career in some ways linked to the stock markets. The first eight years was all these investment banks. And uh, we had, I used to present stock ideas to clients who were investors. And these investors were like small investors to very large, you know, hedge funds, sovereign wealth funds, mutual funds, big international powerhouses. I realized that there is a certain attitude that underlies each of these. Mm. And that attitude is not necessarily conducive to making money on the stock markets. That attitude is more geared towards just sort of feeding into a system which is already working for certain people. In the last seven years, six, seven years that I've been meditating more regularly, I've realized there's a whole alternative way of looking at the stock markets. So I'll give you examples, right? Mm-hmm. The first and biggest superpower is being able to see things with a long-term horizon. Lovely. When you hear that somebody is in the stock market, what is the first question you ask him? These questions are irrelevant. It doesn't matter whether the stock market goes up or down in the near term. What matters is, can you find a company which will give you good returns over a five or 10-year period? Because you're going to live very long Hopefully, all of us are going to live long. And by long, we are talking decades. So why are you bothered about what's going to happen the next year? The second thing is, you know, people telling you, you know, I think there might be a 20% correction. Maybe you should wait. 20% correction, if you're investing for 10, 20 years, you're talking about multiplying your capital three times, five times, 10 times, 20 times. A 20% correction is meaningless. That doesn't mean you shouldn't time. But the truth is that if you look at the track record of people who've timed the market, it's pretty bad. Correct. That's another thing, humbly realizing your own mistakes. So mm. I think mindfulness just enabled me to just be humble and realize what I was not good at. And I was not good at timing the market. I am, I am not good at timing the market. I have absolutely no clue what the market's going to do in the next six months. And it's very tempting, you know, in my investment banking jobs, you know, you can appear very knowledgeable. I can give you a really convincing sounding argument about why the market will go up in six months or why the market will crash in six months. It, they'll all sound convincing. Correct. But the truth is none of them have their foundations in truth. Mm. 
So you stick with the truth. The truth means being okay to say, I don't know. Mm. In fact, I think we should say, I don't know more often. We try and be know-it-alls all the time. Yeah. You know, what's, who's going to win the war in Ukraine? I don't know. I'm not an expert on that. You know, what's going to happen with commodities, inflation? I don't know. I really don't know what's going on in the minds of the OPEC members. I, I wish I could, you know, get into the heads of the heads of state. But the truth is, I have no clue. And just realizing what you don't know, for instance, really helps. So Warren Buffett called it the circle of competence. You play best when you play in the realm of what you can talk about, what you can understand. And don't play. So even now, I give in to temptation sometimes. You know, uh, you know, it's tempting to, for instance, buy certain commodity stocks because you think commodity might go up. But the truth is that it's much easier to just find good businesses, stick with them five, 10 years, and th that's how you can make money. So it's a long-winded answer uh, because it's a topic close to my heart, but I, I hope I've been able to convey it. I love this because this reminded me of a conversation I was having yesterday. So my entire school group, you know, school groups are typically, you know, 100 kids now that I've grown up. And some days they're experts on Warcraft. Some days they're experts on what is happening in cricket. Some days they're experts. Everyone's giving their, you know, <laughs> their, this is how they should have done it. And, you know, if I was there, I would have done. Are, Baba, but like this is totally out of your circle of competence. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Like why are we even listening to you? Exactly. Yeah. It's so funny on how quickly people change into different exactly. expertise. It's actually okay to say, you know what, I'm just shooting the breeze. I'm just, you know, I'm beating my buddies. I'm just going to pontificate on everything. But be be clear that you're just doing this just to like let off steam and not, don't confuse it with your own, don't believe your own bullshit. Correct. Absolutely. It's <laughs> dangerous if you give this gyan and next day go and, you know, make stock purchases based on this. That's when there is a problem. You know, giving gyan is fine. It's, you know, if it's letting off steam. In fact, the mindfulness aspect with the stock market reminded me of a thing that, that Warren Buffett says. And so one, the first thing he says is that my secret to investing and in, getting rich is not dying. So that is the same thing that you said that just live long. And you will yeah. get your triples and quadruples. But the other thing that he says is that if you don't have the ability to hang in there when it goes down, when oh, you yeah. see that everyone losing money and losing their shit, this market is not for you. And that's actually where mindfulness comes in, right? When you totally. can, like you said, go behind the screen and actually see, this is what my mind is thinking. This is what the reality is. Yeah. Is there any truth here? We're going to take a quick break. See you on the other side. Welcome back. All right, let's jump into the conversation. So what you said is you've raised a very interesting point. Be, you know, it's a Rudyard Kipling's poem, right? If you can... I'm trying to remember the exact lines. If you can keep your head while all, all others about you are losing theirs. Correct. Absolutely. And that's really what it is. So, you know, every profession I've realized, I think it's the founder of, uh, sorry, the author of Dilbert, Scott Adams, who said that everything can be done. You just have to find the price and pay the price. Hmm. So, the you know, I, I don't know, maybe in, in law, you know, if you want to become a lawyer, the price to pay is you have to like, read a lot, understand a lot, put in 14, 16 hour work days, that's the price. And if you don't want to put in those type of work days, maybe you should reconsider the profession. Correct. Right. If you want to, I don't know, become a musician, you have to be okay with not getting any validation, not getting any money. If you want to be a writer, oh God, there's a thousand things you have to be okay with, but you get the gist, right? So, yeah. so if you want to be a stock market investor, you have to have a strong stomach. You have to be okay with halving your money and being okay about it. You see all the great investors, 
you know, Warren Buffett. And many times they were like 40, 50% down, you know, even closer home investors like Rakesh Junjunwala, there are many times when their stocks have, you know, gone down a lot. You have to steal yourself and be okay with those times. Correct. And, you know, mindfulness is not just in the stock market, even in our workplaces, leadership, business, all these areas that can be applied. Yeah. In fact, how do we bring mindfulness now into our daily lives, especially from a work point of view? So what is mindfulness really, right? So of okay. course, one of them is the physical process of meditating. And I would strongly urge people, irrespective of their religious denomination, to try and learn meditation. There are many techniques. Choose whichever one seems to appeal to you. It doesn't matter. The second part is, what is it really? It's two things to my mind, the way I have understood it in my own practice. The first part is being aware. You know, many of the times, 90% of the time, we're not even aware what is driving us. You know, somebody is going and fighting with a colleague in the office because three years ago, the colleague said something which seemed like, you know, he was ignoring his work. You're not even aware that happened three years ago. You've forgotten about it, but somewhere in your mind, it's still driving your interaction with that person. Correct. You know, maybe there's somebody who keeps quitting jobs because he's not able to get along with bosses. Now, it's fine once, it's fine twice. If you quit eight jobs repeatedly because you're not able to get along with bosses, you have to think through what is your relationship with authority figures? Was there an authority figure in your life that you had trouble with, maybe a parent? So the first part is awareness, understanding what drives your actions, understanding why you're reacting a certain way to certain things. And slowly, you're trying to go behind the screen. You're trying to see what's the driver of each of those activities of yours, each of those beliefs. You may not want to start an entrepreneurial venture, even though you desperately want to, but you may not actually get around to doing it because somewhere, maybe as a kid, you could not afford to fail. You have seen yourself as somebody who always has to be successful. So it's nice to dream about an entrepreneurial venture. It's not so nice to step in and expose yourself to the possibility of failure. Correct. So I think that's the first part, awareness. And that's a big one. That's a difficult one to get. That's the most difficult one. It's like I liken it to a, you know, it's like you're in a cave mm. and you're not even aware you're in a cave because there's a big boulder blocking the entrance and you make peace with whatever's there in the cave. But somewhere there is this big, you know, sunlight and everything else, the whole world waiting for you. But for that, you have to first move that boulder. Now, the first part is you're not even aware that the boulder is there, you know, and even when you get on this mindfulness path, here and there, you glimpse the possibility of, oh, you know, maybe there is something up there which I can move, but it takes years of work on yourself to be able to actually move that boulder. Hmm. But once you move it, you know, it just, you know, unlocks a whole bunch of things in your life and certainly in your professional life. So, I mean, just as an example, right, this is what I said about somebody not wanting to start an entrepreneurial venture because of fear of failure. People can spend decades fearing failure and not doing certain things. So yeah, awareness is the most important part. Awareness, breaking it up, seeing where your blocks are, knowing who you are. I think that is very difficult one. Yeah. And like step one is where I'm seeing the, the most difficulty coming in True. this aspect. All True. right, lovely. So step one, awareness, who you are, break down whatever the barriers are so far. Yeah. Lovely. Then, then what, what do we do next? So step two, and I mean, there are only two steps here. No, is, is, is the step two is to then act with the right motivation. Okay. So what happens is 99% of the time, we just act on a reflex action type of thing. So, you know, you do your, you know, as a kid, you know, as a, even as a teenager, it's fine. You do what society expects of you. So in my case, I did my engineering and my MBA. 
But at some point, we just realized that, hey, everybody else is, you know, pursuing, I don't know, say investment banking, so I'm doing it. Or, you know, maybe one is supposed to, you know, aspire for having a big apartment in a particular part of town. So let me work towards that. Or maybe everybody is doing a startup nowadays, so I'll do a startup. You know, even that can be peer pressure. Or it's like I'm running a startup. I don't want it to scale up. That's a possibility, right? You know, it's like somebody who's running a small bookstore in Goa or something. He's like, I don't want it to scale up. You know, I don't want to set up this big chain where people get lost. I want to set up this cozy bookshop where I can myself sit and read a book. Maybe maybe that's fine. But, Mm. But, you know, unfortunately, that desire is buried beneath, hey, you know, you're going to have three bankers coming to you and presenting why you should expand your chain of bookstores. You're going to have two consultants coming and telling you how to scale up. You're going to be bombarded by YouTube videos on how to scale up your business. And so somewhere the motivation, the inner motivation gets lost and you're instead working with a series of impressions that are hitting you every day. Mm. And, And these impressions are hitting us every minute of the day. You know, it's like you tell a friend that, hey, I'm going to XYZ place for lunch. And like, why would you want to go there? And poof, that is somewhere playing on your mind. Correct. You know, so, so these impressions are bombarding us to be able to retain the pristinity of that inner compass in the middle of these various impressions. So think of it like a big storm around you and you're trying to protect that bubble. You need to protect that bubble and let your actions as much as possible come from that deep inner motivation. When that happens, that's when those actions can have the biggest consequences. Yeah. So knowing that 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 reason why you're doing what you're doing is that step two. So step one is awareness on who you are and why you the way that you are. Second is figuring out why you're doing what you're doing. And, and sorry, I, I would say figuring out is still part of step one because it's okay. it's understanding. Step mm-hmm. two is letting the right action emerge from the right motivation. Okay. All right. Rather so than letting letting the action emerge from the wrong motivation. So instead of that, you let the dust settle a little bit and then act with conscious motivation from your deep inner compass. Yeah. So Venkatesh, now there are people listening to this podcast who are stuck in a job that they don't like. They are waiting for that clock to hit 5.30 or 6.30 or 7.30 whenever it's okay for them to leave and get out of there. Now, they walk in with resentment. They leave with resentment. How do you bring mindfulness to something like that? So I think if I was to give practical tips, Mm -hmm. I would say the first thing this person, he or she needs to do is tune in to their inner compass. That's Mm -hmm. the first thing. Mm -hmm. Because it looks to me like, suppose I take this sort of persona that you've described. This person is clearly having a lot of conflict. He or she is doing something for eight hours, but feeling sick about it. There needs to be clarity of inner purpose. So how do you find this inner compass? I think the first thing to do is either learn meditation or if not, just preferably in the early part of the day, do something that you deeply enjoy. Mm. It could be just taking a walk in the woods. It could be going swimming. It could be, you know, playing a game. Playing with your pet. Playing with your pet or your kids even, you know, but let that be cordoned off time. Let that be sacrosanct time. Mm. It should not be time which should be intruded by, you know, if your boss is going to message you at that time, just put your phone on silent or just say that, I don't know, you're having a long shower or whatever the hell, but just don't let that time be intruded upon by anything. Mm. Choose a time of the day, preferably in the first half, preferably early morning. And what that time does is it reconnects you with your inner being. Once you reconnect to your inner compass, then you start realizing why 
you're doing certain things. Okay. You may realize that, hey, I'm in this job because I need to save up X amount of money. And you know what? Then tough luck. Just suck it up and make peace with the job. You, you understand this job is going to have trade-offs, but I'm going to wait till I make X. But then be clear about the X. Don't just let the X become 2X and 3X and 5X and that's not right. The second possibility is you may say, hey, I'm stuck in this job because I'm reluctant to face change. Mm. And, you know, all that you may need to do is tread carefully, put your foot in the water, maybe start talking to headhunters, finding another job. Third possibility is maybe you are just in this state of continuous resentment because that's who you are as a person. Mm. Maybe not just at work, but even outside, you like to be in the state of, you know, not being able to step out and be your own person, but yet not be able to make peace with things and somewhere you're in this resentment zone. Correct. What then you can do is as you start making time for yourself and taking joy in that short half an hour pleasure, you'll find that joy spilling over into your day. And you'll realize, you know what, actually I'm the only one who's getting, uh, you know, rammed because of being resentful. So you'll slowly start giving up that resentment when you start to love yourself. And in a way, that's what that half an hour or one hour, you know, teaches you to do. I'm not a big fan of people saying, hey, if you're stuck in this rut and you don't like your boss or your job, quit. Mm. Or, you know, because each person is different. To one person, you may say, hey, quit and take up another job in the same industry. To one person, you may say, hey, you want to actually start a company. Why don't you do that? To another person, it might be, why don't you work on your own feelings of resentment? What have those come from? Maybe something in childhood. And to another person, it might just be, you know what, everything's fine. You just need to take time for yourself. Just take a break. It's just as simple as that in some cases. So it's different shoes for different folks. But to know which shoe fits you, you have to start making that time. Yeah, long-winded answer, but I hope that answered your question. No, that's very interesting because when you bucket yourself into one of these three categories on which one are you that you need to figure out, then there is a change that can take place. And in fact, maybe to the third category, the one that is resentful, I would add another thing and and love your thoughts on this. Resentment of your job is now something that I'm seeing as people thinking of as cool. You know, it's cool to be resentful of your job or life sucks or, you know, same shit, new day, that kind of stuff. And it's just becoming the same narrative on, on like, for example, Instagram and your social platform. And it's something that I find very scary. Yeah. And especially when we talk about mindfulness at work, if your mind is so full, all puns intended, of these kinds of thoughts, how are you ever going to enjoy it? Oh, yeah, totally. I, I, yeah, it is, even to me, it is quite disturbing to see this sort of skeptical, cynical, you know, crib marrowing type <laughs> attitude. I think this is what happens when the sense of wonder is lost. Yeah. Just recapture that sense of wonder. And sometimes there is also kinship in numbers, right? It's so great to get together with a few colleagues and bitch about the job or whatever. But yeah, I think once somebody told me this, that, you know, aap ucha prakash dekhoge, hmm. so, you know, if you see the bigger light, you will get over the smaller preoccupation. So that bigger light is the light of, you know, sense of wonder and just joy of creativity and all that. When you see that, then you'll stop getting, it's like, you know, I'm going to risk getting ostracized for saying this. It's like saying, ki aapne wo, you know, did you eat the Delhi ka papri chart or not? If you eat the papri chart made in any other city, I mean, it's not the same thing. Not so once same. you eat the Delhi ka papri chart, you'll not feel like eating the papri chart in any other city. It's like that. Correct. Correct. Absolutely. So it's understanding what it is, why you're doing this, clearing up your mind from all this clutter, you know, those three C's, you know, complaining, criticizing, comparing. If you get these things out of your life and start focusing on that wonder, I think 
and you put it so well wonder is missing you yeah. know that wow so we need to bring that focus back in and wonder into our life yeah, all right totally lovely venkatesh this was absolutely brilliant thank you so much for coming and and sharing this with us um how can people continue this conversation with you how can people find out more about you your books sure so my website is svenkatesh.in all my social media handles are mentioned there i'm on twitter instagram linkedin facebook everything so yeah you know viewers can get in touch with me fantastic and we'll have the links in the show notes below sure. venkatesh thank you so much for coming on the happy coach podcast thank you ashwin this has been wonderful thank awesome you. now if you like this podcast don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the ivm network you can listen to us on the ivm podcast app or ivmpodcast.com You can also follow us on social media. We are at IBM Podcasts on Twitter and Instagram. If you want to reach out to me, I am at Ashton Doc on Twitter and Instagram. We have a brand new habit coaching online course, quizzes, videos, and a lot more on the website awesome180.com. So check it out now.